Welcome to the Federalist Outpost. Fast forward to July 2024 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's the Republican National Convention, and the Republicans have known for probably about two months who the nominee is going to be. But they've known for about 112 years that it wasn't going to be Donald Trump. And if they didn't know that, they should have. Because there's only two prior men that have ever attempted to log a second full term as a U.S. president after leaving office. And that's Democrat Grover Cleveland, who did it in 1892, and Theodore Roosevelt, who did it 20 years later in 1912. He's a Republican. Now, Cleveland was successful in his bid for a second full term. Roosevelt was not. And there were some reasons for that. But Donald Trump, the third person to try to do that, is going to suffer the same fate as Roosevelt, and history already knows it. To take a look at the two historical examples that we've got, Grover Cleveland and Teddy Roosevelt, you can see why they succeeded or why they failed in the different circumstances that were going on around him. And so we'll start with Grover Cleveland because he was the success story, right? He's, he's who Trump has to be in order to get back to the presidency in 2024. So Grover was originally from New Jersey. He would moved up to Buffalo, New York, uh, relatively young age with his family. And he passes the New York bar in 1859. Now, his father died in 1853. So he's in this position where he's the provider for his family, his, his mother and his sister. Um, and here he's just become a new lawyer. So he's got this opportunity. But the country is on the brink of civil war. And so the draft comes up. And lo and behold, Grover gets drafted, but he doesn't go or he pays for someone else to substitute for him. And that means that they went to war in his stead. You could go pay somebody at the time and they could go. Now, it sounds like one of those things where the rich people just send, you know, some poor bastard off to the, the war to go die. And that's kind of what it looks like. And that's what it gets painted as later when he runs against the Republicans. But his claim was that he had done it so that he could care for his widowed mother. And there's some merit to that claim, and there may or may not be some merit to whether or not he was just a draft dodger. But he starts out just straight out the gate, avoiding military service, which isn't something that you hear about much for politicians. And that's just how it is. He never ends up joining. Now, it's not as though he does anything miraculous in the 1860s either. So he's an attorney from 1859 on, but he's a middling kind of nondescript assistant district attorney. And he doesn't really pop up on anybody's radar until the 1870s. In 1870, he ends up the sheriff of Erie County. Now, I don't know what the qualifications are to be a sheriff, but it seems to me that it couldn't have been that difficult if they're just hiring people off the street. But either way, he's sheriff of Erie County for three years until 1873, and then he gets out of office. And he, you don't hear from him for eight years. And all of a sudden, he shows back up in 1881, and he gets elected to be mayor of Buffalo, uh, where he proceeds to veto a bunch of spending bills and, and try to eliminate corruption and get rid of all this wastefulness and, and the expenditures, and he becomes pretty popular with the city of Buffalo, and he develops this reputation. So the next year, in 1882, he gets the Democratic nomination for governor of New York. Here's a guy who's been in office for you know, a year. And now he's going to be the Democrat nominee for New York, and he wins it. And so then, you know, he, he's got this meteoric rise from nobody in 1880 to governor in 1882. And then in 1884, he manages to get the nomination for the Democrats to run for president. And then he wins. So over the course of four years, he goes from nobody to president of the United States. And he does the same thing the whole way through. He does a great job of cutting the budget. 
He does a great job of trimming expenditures that aren't necessary and rooting out corruption. That's a very common theme in this era of the United States is getting rid of corruption apparently is a massive problem. But he does all this, and there's a, a surplus, and the last thing that he's having to deal with in the last component of his 1884 term is a tariff. Now, we had tariffs in place for you know almost 100 years at that point, uh, with the idea being that we were limiting foreign competition with United States-based businesses. And at the time, it was a lot of New England businesses. But Grover didn't like the tariff. He wanted the tariff to be reduced. He felt like it was costing the American people too much money. And so if he lowered those costs, we could start importing things at a lower rate. And, you know, essentially quality of life would go up. Well, it made a lot of people angry because at that point, he's talking about creating more competition for U.S. businesses. And so the businesses band together in 1888. And they spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to get him out because of this one tariff issue. And it ends up that the Republican, uh, Benjamin Harrison, who ran on a very similar to what Donald Trump ran on. It's an America first platform. Harrison is, is pushing for the tariffs. He wants to increase them. He's making the arguments that we need to keep protecting American businesses. And at the time, the Republicans were uh, against any level of involvement in anything going on in the Eastern Hemisphere, to be honest. I mean, it was isolationism uh, before isolationism in the 1920s and 1930s. But that's where Harrison is. So Grover never really pivots, and the Republicans beat him. And so he's out of office for four years. Now, he, he, ironically enough, in that election, he wins the popular vote, but he loses the Electoral College, and he loses it by like a lot, 50, 60 votes in the Electoral College, and he's done. So he loses the election, but he continues to play a role with the Democrats over the next four years. Now, Harrison, the new president, uh, comes in, he, he does exactly what he says. He's going to double down on that tariff, and by God, he does. And he does it in 1890, so you know it's been about a year, year and a half since he took the office. And then he goes on a spending spree. And you see, there had been a national surplus at the time, which doesn't mean much to us now because we're trillions of dollars in debt, and that number goes up like by the minute. But at the time, they didn't like being in a deficit because if we owed a foreign country uh, a certain amount of money, then that would be a problem for us. And they could invade us under terms of, hey, you've defaulted on your debt, which is exactly what Europe was trying to do around the same era with South America. Was, they lent a bunch of money to these, these small countries, and the countries couldn't pay them back. And so, oh, no, we've got to come and invade you, right? And, and look at China and, you know, modern times, China's doing it right now to Africa. It's the same trick. It's been going on for hundreds of years. But that was the concern at the time was, you know, we don't want somebody to try to invade us because we owe money. So a, a national debt is a problem. And Harrison goes from this surplus into this debt. He doubles down on the tariff and you start having massive problems in the economy. Now, on a worldwide basis, there is a recession that happens in the 1890s. It starts in Europe. It spreads all across the globe. It's a bigger problem elsewhere than it is in the United States, but it's still an issue here. But it's an issue in 1892, and so here we've got this next presidential election, and Grover runs again. And with all the financial troubles and the financial history, the Democrats think that he's got a great chance. So when he goes to the Democratic National Convention, he wins, and he wins big. 
there's nobody anywhere close. I think he was in first place with like 619 votes. The guy that came in second was somewhere like mid-100s. It's not a competition. And so they, they actually revised the ballot so that it becomes a unanimous selection for Grover. And Grover gets the Democratic nod. And then he goes and argues against Harrison. And surprising no one at all, he beats Harrison. Uh, just hands down, beats him. And so here you've got Grover's second term. Now, it, it's at the time there were not term limits, so he could have kept running and running and running forever if he was winning. think, you know, FDR did that until we decided to amend the Constitution. But Grover wins this second term, separated by a term here from Harrison, uh, from his first term. So he's successful, and he's successful because he's got some good tailwinds. Uh, the economy is an issue. You're looking at issues with the debt. You're looking at issues with uh, the tariff. And then you got a high popularity amongst both your own party, right? Because remember, he won that nomination handily. There's nobody in second place that's actually chomping at his heels. Uh, he's got a good popularity amongst the electorate. I mean, you know, don't forget he won that, that first uh, re-election campaign when it comes to the popular vote by about 100,000, which is a pretty good portion of the population at the time. You're only talking about 20 or 30 million people in the country. But he's got the virtually unanimous support of the Democratic Party. He's got issues in the general election that favor him. And he's got a very weak opponent who just put the country in a bad spot. So everything kind of comes together and Grover gets his second term. Now, Teddy's rise to president is different than Grover's was. And, you know, no offense to Grover, but Grover was just not the character that Teddy was. And Teddy has, you know, lived in our lore ever since. I mean, we've got teddy bears named after him. We've got all kinds of things that have still flowed to today from what Teddy Roosevelt did in the early 1900s. So his, his background is a little bit different than Grover. And he starts out as a state assemblyman at the age of 23 for New York, right? Another New York politician. But he serves two terms. He's, uh, he had gone through college. I think he went to like Harvard or something. And then he went to law school for a year and he dropped out, which great idea. Don't go all the way through. There's a lot of debt. I don't know if there was at the time, but there is now. But he goes all the way through uh, college. He drops out after that first year of law school and he runs and wins quickly uh, for the state assembly. He serves from 1882 to 1884, but he's got a massive tragedy that happens in 1884. On Valentine's Day, his mother and his wife die. His mom dies of typhoid. His wife dies of a kidney disease. And oh, by the way, his wife just gave birth to their oldest child uh, two days before. So Teddy's devastated. And, and when this happens, Teddy is at the legislature and he's working on this government reform bill he was very passionate about. And when he gets called home, I think you, you have to figure he knows something's wrong. I don't think that they told him until he got there. But either way, it haunts him. And he is devastated as, as you can be. And he's in a terrible spot because he's young. He's 24, 25. Uh, he quits the legislature on the spot. He's upset about the fact that he wasn't by his mother's side or his wife's side when they died. And instead, he was doing all this uh, politicking. And so he abandons it. He quits the legislature, leaves politics. And he leaves the state. He heads out, uh, out west and becomes a rancher. Now, his newborn daughter, he leaves with his sister, and he kind of just escapes everything. And, and for two years, he's got cattle, and he's out uh, 
raising his cattle and and he becomes a local sheriff you know sounds like grover i guess there's not much in the way of qualifications to be sheriff except for hey i want to do it but he lives this completely different life for two years and he gets a little bit closer to nature and you know that that becomes something that he's passionate about later in his life but in 1885 he has his cattle herd it's his prized cattle herd it's what he's making his living off of and it gets completely wiped out by a blizzard so he's got nothing again for the second time and he's out in the Dakotas. So there's nobody out there for him. He decides he's going to come back. So he goes back to the East coast and pretty much jumps straight back into politics. The upside is, is he, he gets his daughter and it starts taking care of his daughter. Who's now a couple of years old. And he kind of picks up all the pieces from where his former life was and jumps into politics. He runs for, New York City mayor, he loses, but he doesn't just stop there. He ends up joining the U.S. Civil Service Commission. Now, this is, an, it, I think it was created by Grover Cleveland, but it is a federal agency, I think it's the original federal agency, that selects uh, employees on the basis of merit rather than family ties. And the idea was you want to prevent nepotism, and uh, it's a good idea. Whether or not that was successful, I don't know. But he serves on this board for a number of years. He serves on it... Um, under Grover Cleveland, uh, when Cleveland gets back in. And uh, later he ends up on the New York City Board of Police Commissioners. So, and he's actually the president of that. So he gets very involved again, and you can kind of see that he's trying to build up his career. He gets remarried. Um, in the interim, he, he starts having other children. As he gets into the presidency, he's got very young children. You hear about that later. But he restarts his life, and he's gone. Now, in 1886... William McKinley succeeds uh, Grover Cleveland in the presidency. And Grover, it, for our purposes, Grover doesn't get the nomination in 1896. Uh, it's another gentleman by the name of William Jennings Bryan. He's a Democrat, and he's a former representative, but he loses to McKinley. So McKinley takes over the White House, and he appoints Teddy to be the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. I don't know what qualifies you to be an assistant secretary of the Navy, but, you know, Teddy's just come back from being in the Dakotas. There's not a lot of water out there, but whatever. It seems to me that there's a lot of people that get appointed to things or or get made sheriff with no prior history, and yet here they are. Either way. So Teddy becomes pretty heavily involved in military buildups, and he starts forming a lot of opinions about what's going on internationally with different potential conflicts. And at this point, you're starting to see the buildup towards World War I and Europe. Now, at about this time, the United States is about a hair's breadth from getting involved in the Spanish-American War. And when that war kicks off, Teddy ends up leaving his position as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy and goes to take a second-in-command position for the Rough Riders. The Rough Riders are a volunteer cavalry unit that's comprised of miners and college athletes and law enforcement and cowboys and apparently Teddy Roosevelt. And the Rough Riders do well in the Spanish-American War. They fight a couple of battles that are uh, consequential to the whole conflict. And out of this comes the legend that we all know of now as Teddy Roosevelt. He's this larger-in-life character uh, who's the only war hero from that particular conflict. So when he returns to the United States, the Republicans want to take advantage of that, as as you do when you're in politics, and they talk him into running for governor in 
1898. Now, guess which state he's running for governor in? New York. Now, he wins, and he immediately starts reforming the government. And it's very Grover Cleveland-like in how he does it. But he's removing corruption, and then he starts regulating corporations, and he starts regulating the civil service. And he's trying to fix all of the problems that he can see with how that particular branch of the government is working. And so he becomes popular. Now, this is an issue for party leaders in New York because he's rooting out a lot of what we would probably refer to today as deep state. Problems that have been there for a long time, some very heavily entrenched people, and he's ruffling the feathers of the local corporations. But this guy's a war hero, right? And the Republicans don't want to waste that, but they're tired of him meddling in New York. And so what they do to him is pretty much what they've done with Kamala Harris in modern times. They remove the problem through promotion, and they talk him into accepting the Republican nomination for vice president for McKinley's second run. And this is the 1900 presidential election. And originally, Teddy is against it. He's, he's not real sure he wants to. He's governor. He can do things here. He's making a difference. But they end up talking him into it. And so McKinley takes Teddy on, and he gets reelected in 1900 and is promptly assassinated. So McKinley's gone all of a sudden, and in September 1901, Roosevelt becomes president. And so he's done all of this over the span of about 15 years, so it's a little bit slower than what you're looking at with Grover. But at the same time, his, his major election, his first major election, is governor in 1898, and all of a sudden in 1901, he's president of the United States. Now, he does a couple of cool things right away. He's the, he's the guy that names the White House the White House. I guess it used to be called the Executive Mansion or something boring. He calls it the White House. And he has an initial set of policies that are pretty successful. And it's very much what he did in New York. He likes to root out corruption. He likes to make sure that everybody is playing fair uh, as far as the corporations and in labor. And he builds this resume that that is pretty popular. So... When we get to 1904, there's not any real material problems facing the country at the time. There's no massive economic problem. We're not quite at World War I yet. And there haven't been any major screw-ups on Teddy's uh, plate that the Democrats could take advantage of. And so this election in 1904, which is his first election, because remember, he inherits the position from McKinley, who dies. His first election of president, his second overall major election, Uh, He wins in a landslide because it's a personality contest at that point. It's his personality uh, against the Democrat candidate who had been a head of the appeals court judge from New York, and he's boring. And so Roosevelt wins. And his second term, uh, first elected term, but his second term becomes kind of a mess. And it's because he starts to alienate the rest of the Republican Party base. And when I say base, I'm not talking about the voters necessarily. But the actual party mechanisms themselves, all the different groups that have been well entrenched inside of the party, don't like the reforms that he's pushing. And they don't like that he's trying to end the isolationist positions that they've maintained with respect to all these foreign affairs. And he starts chasing down the large corporations and he starts filing antitrust lawsuits under the Sherman Act. And he gets involved in more labor disputes. So you're seeing this very progressive stance from a Republican. And he's got his fingers in pretty much every pie in the room, and the party is pissed. Because remember, they put him there to get him out of the way. 
But the problem with kicking the guy upstairs is eventually he's the person at the top and now you got to deal with all the decisions that he's making. But he gets towards that second half of his, his term here and he starts consolidating power. The presidency stops being about policy and starts being about Teddy. So he starts using presidential orders in a way that we can't really think of until you get to Obama, because Obama is huge on presidential orders for everything. Uh, but Roosevelt starts creating a bunch of different agencies. And, you know, some of them are good. National Park Service is one. But a lot of them are the very beginning of what eventually turns into the modern administrative state that we, we deal with today. Because, you know, a, a huge portion of our lives is dictated by some executive branch agency, whether that's going to be the IRS or whether that's going to be, you know, NOAA or NASA or all these other things that the executive branch is actually in charge of. It doesn't really matter, but it starts back with Teddy. Now, after he makes those changes, he continues to go down the crazy train rabbit hole and he starts doing weird things. He's pushing the United States to switch to a simplified spelling system. Uh, he's diving headfirst into race issues like an idiot. And he's, his positions are all over the place. He's the first president to invite an African-American to come have dinner at the White House. And then by the end of his, his first elected term, all of a sudden he's got opinions about whether or not there needs to be more whites and, and whether or not the birth rates are right. And he's, just, he's off his rocker by the end of that term. And Republicans have had enough of him. So he's promised that he's not going to run for another term. And he handpicks William Taft. Now, this is essentially, he's going to be a kingmaker. He picks Taft. Taft is going to be the next candidate. And Taft runs and wins. Well, the problem is, is that Taft is under the shadow of Roosevelt initially. Roosevelt then goes on this 10-month uh, hunting spree, essentially, out in Africa. And then he tours Europe on this massive, you know, let me shake everybody's hand, I'm famous kind of a tour. And while he's doing that, Taft is working his way out of Roosevelt's shadow. Teddy starts to find out that a lot of the policies he had put into place, a lot of the theories about how he felt the government should be run, are being erased by Taft. So by 1812, Teddy's decided that it's time to come back and take the reins. And there's a material portion of the Republican Party that wants him to. So he comes back and he fights Taft, the sitting president, for the Republican nomination. And the election is brutal. I mean, it devolves into name-calling and personal attacks about as quickly as modern politics does. But the things that are said to Teddy or about Teddy in this election are things you've heard in the last seven years said about Trump. And I mean, Taft starts out a little bit quietly, but starts out saying things like, Teddy is the greatest menace to our institutions that we've had in a long time. And he's, he's making that claim by the way, to a group of people who the older generation fought the Civil War, the middle generation's parents fought the Civil War, and the youngest generation's grandparents fought the Civil War. So he's, he's saying that this is almost as bad as the Civil War. And it goes on to claim that Teddy has become the most dangerous man in American history because of his quote-unquote hold upon the less intelligent voters and the discontented. I mean, that's, that's exactly what you've heard Hillary Clinton say and Joe Biden say and every Democrat that uh, has run for any level of office uh, since 2016. Has, they've all said it about Trump, and they've said it using almost those exact words. Now, Teddy, for his part, isn't innocent in this either. 
he's picking on everybody from the judiciary. And oh, by the way, the judiciary, after he left, struck down a ton of his laws as unconstitutional. He goes on, Teddy goes on, and he starts picking on the Republican Party leaders and, and Taft and the mechanisms and the machines and all this stuff. But they run all the way through the primaries, and it, it's nasty, and it's this dogfight. And Roosevelt wins the primaries, but loses the delegates. And I'm not sure how that worked at the time, but essentially what would happen is Roosevelt would win the actual election primary, Taft would come away with all the delegates, and so you end up with this split decision, even though Roosevelt wins all of them except for Massachusetts. So when they tally the votes at the Republican National Convention, uh, nobody gets to the 500 votes that they need in order to win. Roosevelt is in the lead, though. He's got 411. Taft has 367. Uh, there's a handful that go to these other people that never have a chance anyway. But there's 254 delegates that are up for grabs. And these 254 delega delegates are going to determine who it is that's going to be the Republican nominee. Now, you'd assume that because Teddy is in the lead, they're going to give him to Teddy. But they don't. And the Republican National Committee's infinite wisdom, they decide to award Taft 235 of the 254 delegates. And they only give 19 to Teddy. So you can imagine what the next allegation is going to be. Roosevelt's pissed. And he's going to Chicago. He's, he's claiming that this whole thing is rigged. And Chicago's where the convention is. And the night before the actual formal vote is to take place, he's given a stump speech outside. And at the end of the speech, he refers to this election in the Republican National Convention as the doors to Armageddon. He says, we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. And you can see him trying to rally all of his people. He actually encourages the delegates to not vote for who the Republican National Committee tells them to. He wants them all to vote for him. I mean, it's very Trump-esque. It, it's, it's words you've heard Trump say. But he says it. And, and so the next day, it's the vote tabulations start, and it becomes clear that he's not going to get the nomination. And so the Republicans suggest a compromise because everybody can see the writing on the wall. They know that if Teddy can't get his way, he's going to walk. And so they say, okay, well, how about a compromise? Maybe we can come up with a candidate that everybody can be happy with, which is a lot more common at the time. You never hear about it now. But 150 years ago, this is par for the course. And they say, okay, well, you know, we'll let you be a kingmaker this one last time. You can tell us who you want. And he essentially responds, and this is exact quote from him. He says, I'll name the compromise candidate. He'll be me. I'll name the compromise platform. It will be our platform. And then he left. And so he took all of his delegates. He, he starts his own political party, which they later refer to as the Bull Moose Party because Teddy is said to be as strong as a bull moose. And the Republicans who remained, and obviously support Taft, were bitter about Teddy. And there's this division inside the Republican Party. And there was somebody that, that got uh, interviewed around the same time and is a Republican. And he said, we can't elect Taft, and we must do anything to elect Wilson so as to defeat Roosevelt. Well, these are, these are the anti-Trump Republicans from 2020, essentially. I mean, it, arguably even from 2016. But Teddy has created this anti-Teddy population inside of the Republican Party. And he splits off, and he's going to be on the ballot too. So you get Roosevelt and Taft 
and Woodrow Wilson on the ballot. Shocking no one, Woodrow Wilson wins. And that's the end of it for Teddy. I mean, he, he dies a few years later. I think it's about nine or ten years later. But Teddy's done in politics. Now, if we take a look at what Teddy had for that, that second election, uh, you know, again, it would have been his third term, but the second time he was getting elected to it, uh, and you look at the circumstances, and you can see pretty clearly that all of the issues have gone from being a policy kind of a concern for the electorate to a personality concern for the electorate. And you've got this aggressive politicking that's going on against Taft. Taft is engaged in it as well, and they're saying all these horrible things about Teddy. And people aren't paying any attention to the actual substantive issues that either Taft or Teddy are talking about anymore. It is a dogfight. That's all they care about. And when Teddy can't win it, fair or otherwise, and he takes his toys and he leaves and decides he's going to run anyway, he can't win. And he knows he can't win, but it's ego. And that's all he's got. There's no issue here that he's arguing for. There's nothing happening in the outside world yet, because it's 1912, not 1915 or 1916. But there's no external influence. There's no tailwinds that are going to help him. And he's become his own headwind because he doesn't have the support of the party that put him there in the first place. And he split the party that's likely to vote for him. And he can't manage to pull enough of the moderate Democrats over to his side. He's done. And he doesn't know it until it's too late. And Woodrow Wilson gets to be the next president. So back to Trump. He's, he's Teddy, right? I mean, I know I went into a lot more detail about Teddy than I did about Grover, but Grover's boring. Um, Having said that, the circumstances here would indicate that 2024 is going to have tailwinds for the Republicans in the same way that Grover Cleveland had some tailwinds in his election. Now, we've got economic issues. Uh, Inflation's been a huge issue for the past year, although I don't know that inflation's going to be as bad when we get to 2024. Um, But certainly we're going to have some economic problems coming up. There's no way we get out of this without a recession. Um, And frankly, we've We've had supply chain issues that should have been resolved by now. I mean, COVID was uh, kicked off three years ago. It, the supply chain issue should have been cured. I don't know why we're still struggling, but it's something that comes up every two months. You can't find what you're looking for in the store still. On top of that, you've also got the fact that we're a stone's throw from World War III, and we have been for the last nine months. And you have to figure that the Republicans are going to have a hand up because Biden can't do anything right. It, Rightly or wrongly, that's how it is. Now, on the other hand, Teddy has got a lot in common with Trump. And, you know, he's got the loyal following the way that Trump does now. But the problem is, again, that it's not a big enough number. I mean, Trump's followers, you can see them all over the place. They're rabid. They're fans. They, they liked his policies. They like his personality. Maybe they like his personality now a little bit more than they like his policies. But they're rabidly loyal and they're not going anywhere. But they're not a majority of the Republican Party. No matter how much the Democrats like to say it, they just, they just don't have that many people. And they don't have the weight that even probably Teddy Roosevelt's crowd did. Now, just like Roosevelt, Trump has worked this last two years and is likely to work the next two years as sort of an outside influence, kind of picking and poking at different things. And we just saw him in the midterms. He tried to play kingmaker. I mean, now Roosevelt did this a little bit more successful than Trump did because uh, he got to pick his replacement. But Trump has failed at this a couple of elections in a row. And you look at it uh, with this most recent 2022 election, and you have to think that Trump's noticed it. 
because here we are, we're just before the Georgia runoff with Herschel Walker, and Trump is nowhere. He is not running out there with Herschel Walker. They're not running ads together. Hey, he has completely backed off of Herschel, and Herschel's his guy. So if Trump didn't notice it, I think he'd be out there. But I think he's got to realize now that he's not a kingmaker. More importantly, though, is that Trump has allowed all of the elections that involve him to become about his personality and not the policies. Because the reason that he won in 16 was not because anybody liked his personality. Everybody knew the guy was a jerk. They wanted to see somebody from outside with some different policies because it had been a lot of the same old, same old for a long time. And so Trump has lost that edge that he had originally. And now he's like Teddy. Because, you know, again, Teddy lost that edge. But he's got competition. And he's got competition from people that are only talking about policies. It's not about their personality. Right now, it's Ron DeSantis. And I mean, that name may or may not stay. I, I, I live in Florida. I like Ron. But there's other people like Brian Kemp that could come in and be that guy or that girl for the Republican Party and talk policy. And that's going to be serious competition for Trump. And so you can't look at it the way that Grover Cleveland did, where, hey, there's nobody within miles. There's a lot of people next to Trump. And frankly, those lead names may change a number of times between here and the Republican National Convention in 2024. But it's never going to be Trump at the top by himself. Now, we all know that when he doesn't secure the nomination, which I don't think he can, he, he, his numbers are never, not going to be big enough to get to that nomination. But when he doesn't secure it, he's going to complain just like Teddy did. And he's going to say, oh, the powers that be within the Republican Party, it, this is their fault. They did this. And he's egotistical enough to believe that with all his heart and still think that he can go out and run as a third-party candidate. And he'll do it because he's egotistical enough to do so and because he's got the money to do so and because he is delusional enough to think that he's going to be able to win without the other half of the Republican Party because he'll think that he can pull enough of the Republicans and enough of the Democrats together to win a majority of the electoral votes. But he can't do it because he's not going to have Florida and he's not going to have enough of the votes in the rest of the country to shake a stick at. So he can't win as a third-party candidate. Nobody has since Henry Clay won in the 1850s. He can't win the Republican National Convention and the nomination. So he's done. Donald Trump is never going to be elected again. And that's just it. There's, there's nothing else to it at this point. Now, a couple of additional notes that, while I was doing the research for all of this, I ran into a couple of things. And the reason I think that people don't understand what the Electoral College is for is because the way the country was set up originally is different than the way the country is now. In the 1800s, the vast majority of the national political scene was defined by New York. Republican or Democrat, it was always defined by New York. And because of that, you had a lot of states that were essentially overlooked because New York was making the decisions for everybody else. The only way to protect against that was to have uh, the breakup of the Electoral College the way they did. Otherwise, you know, your largest state or two states could dictate how the rest of the country went. And New York was so populous and the numbers were so much bigger than everybody else. New York would have just, it had been a dictatorship. Anything that New York said would have gone. And as you saw with Grover Cleveland and with Teddy Roosevelt, the 
doorway to the White House seemed to go through the governor's mansion in New York. So the Electoral College was a big deal. It was an important thing to keep those major population centers from controlling the rest of the country. It's still important today. It serves those same functions. We've still got, you know, four big states here with California and New York, frequently Democrat. You've got Texas and Florida that are Republican. But if all four of those had switched to the same party, I think there would be a huge concern in the rest of the country. So I I hate it when people say get rid of the Electoral College. It's there for a reason. It needs to stay. Just because it's not useful right now doesn't mean it won't be useful later. The other thing is that Encyclopedia Britannica is slanted as hell. I have, I always go to a lot of different sources. I've got a history degree, and so I know you can never just go to one source and read, and I'm perfectly content to read from everywhere. But the stuff in Britannica that I keep reading is so slanted to the liberal side that it's difficult to pull what's truth out of it. I mean, and they bash, they bash Teddy, it, there's, there's no comment about Teddy's uh, invitation to the first African-American to be hosted at a dinner in the White House at all. There's no comment about it. But they'll talk about all the stupid race things that he jumped into at the end of his second term and, and talk about how bad of a person he is because he jumped into those things. And, and he's guilty of doing some stupid stuff. But they're only playing one side of the table here, and Britannica is just slanted. So if you ever go online and you do the Google search on stuff and you're not going to Wikipedia, which is also slanted, but you're trying to look for something that's credible, Britannica is not on the list. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. If you like us, uh, like the podcast, subscribe. If you hate the podcast, subscribe. If you feel neutral about us, subscribe. Maybe you'll like us later. Uh, But as always, we appreciate it. Follow the Federalist Outpost on Twitter, Gitter, and Substack.